If you have a Bible, open it to Romans. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning, and um, we are going to be uh, continuing in um, the good news part of Romans. Uh, we've, been in, um, we've been in Romans for a while now, and uh, we've been talking about some hard things, and hopefully things are going to get a little bit, a little bit easier here. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning. And I just realized that the first slide only has 1 through 5. So if you're going to be going off the slides, you're going to miss three verses, but I'm going to read them anyway. Uh, but if you're going off your Bible, your phone, something like that, then you, know, you should be going off a Bible or a phone anyway. So there you go. Maybe we'll do that every week. We'll just cut a few verses out of the slide. You won't know what they are. And you'll be like, you know, it's starting to really become a problem for me. I'm going to have to get a Bible one of these days. Romans 4, 1 through 8 says this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We're going to stop right there. So Romans 1 and 2, just a quick review here, are basically which we talked about in the beginning, written by Paul to be so clear about a simple fact, which is this, that you were all, we were all made to ultimately serve God and to find our fulfillment in him looking at us and saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Those words that he utters to Jesus are the words that we were created to live for, to be fueled by, to need, to draw life and meaning and purpose from. Okay, Romans 1 and 2 basically says, this is how God set everything up. And you probably, even if you think you don't know it, do know it on some level inside in your heart, whether you've accepted and admitted it or not. Chapter 3 goes on to basically say, uh, kind of goes on to start telling us and sort of set the record straight that if you have figured out just how much you need the approval of God, just how much your life and the lives of the people around you depend on it, then you're going to try to get it the wrong ways. So uh, Paul seems a little negative in chapter 3. Have you ever, if you've ever been around one of those couples who feel like they know uh, everything about each other, and a lot of that stuff is negative, right? And so it's like, I know what you're going to do, so don't do it, right? 
uh, you always do this, so don't always do this, right? And you're, you're there going like, okay, uh, this is kind of awkward, right? Uh, and they've just decided after a while in a relationship, oh, I know the thing that you're going to do, and we know it's not going to be good, so just don't even bother with it. That's sort of how Paul comes across in chapter 3 of Romans. He basically says, listen, if you are convinced of just how much you need God, need to be in a relationship with him, then uh, you're going to do the wrong things to try to get to him. Well, thanks, Paul. Appreciate that, right? But he does a pretty convincing job, a pretty good job of convincing us. What he really ends up saying is he kind of says up till this point in Romans, there's two things that you're going to be prone to do. Any person that you ever meet on the street, including yourself, are going to be prone to do. One, you're going to be like, "I, uh, I don't actually need God. And even if he did set all this up, he probably set it up in such a way that as long as I'm willing to acknowledge that I don't need him, and maybe I won't celebrate even Christmas or anything like that, that I can still find fulfillment and happiness some other way. Or uh, you're someone who's like, I know that I need God, and I'm going to pursue God, but Paul's words to that person is, chances are you're doing it the wrong way. Basically, the answer that we get from Paul is that the way to fulfillment and recognition and satisfaction that we all need, that we all crave, is simply trusting in what God has done for us. We talked about this last week. We are justified, Paul says, by faith in Christ. We are justified by not what we do, what we can accomplish, not how we can work, but what God has done. And Paul ends the passage we were on last week by saying, so there's really nothing to boast in about yourself when it comes to uh, yourself. Uh, because really, we, must, we should be people who are boasting not in us, not in what we've done, but in what God himself has done for us. But this is all still kind of abstract, and so in chapter 4, what Paul does here in, the, in this passage that we're in is uh, this thing that we do where you're trying to understand something and you go, you know what would just make it a lot easier? Could you just show me what it looks like? Could you just show me what it looks like for someone to actually do what it is that you're talking about? And so Paul does that. And he does that with the uh, single most significant figure um, in the Jewish faith. Because he's writing to a church that is comprised uh, largely of Jewish Christians with a lot of Gentile Christians as well. But he's writing to them. And so his example to them, Paul's is, that we just read is this. Let's talk then about Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham who you look up to as an example of what it means for a person to really be a good person. To really be loved by God and to be accepted by God. And why he is so great. Because uh, turns out that the majority of the Jewish people had the wrong understanding of what made the forefathers of their faith really great in God's eyes. If you want to understand what he's talking about here, we have to go to Genesis chapter 15. We're talking this morning about this, justification by faith, which is what we talked about last week, justification by faith. But we're talking about three things, okay? We're going to talk about what it is, what is justification by faith. Here, I'll put the first one up. What is it, okay? We're going to talk about what is it, why we fight it, and how in the world we actually could potentially, how, how in the world we could live in it. So what is it, why we fight it, and how do we live in it? Justification by faith. Because this is what Paul's trying to get at here. So to understand what it is, 
we go back to Genesis 15, and we use the example that, uh, that Paul is using of Abraham. We read this in Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He said, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Did I put the rest of it up here? Yes. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram is one of the wealthiest men in the world. When God comes to him, a man who has a tremendous amount of land, tremendous number of servants, a tremendous number of, of cattle, and anything that brings wealth at the time, but he doesn't have the most important thing to a Jewish person, which is an heir. He does not have children of his own. And God comes to this man, Abram, and he says to him, I'm going to make you the father of this great nation. I'm going to give you a child, the thing that you desire the most in the world. You must simply believe that I'm going to do it. So Abraham believes God. He believes what God said to him. And because he trusted God, he had no reason not to trust God. There was no reason to doubt or to question anything that God said to him. But he was in a difficult situation because his wife was older, they were barren, they hadn't had kids up till that point. It would take the intervention of God, no other thing. So all he had to do was trust God. Now, most Jewish scholars at the time understood, they believed that what made Abraham such a great example to the people, uh, uh, to the Jewish people, was his works. They believed that he was an example of what it means to truly follow the law and be a good person. They believe that he himself was righteous and that God saw a righteous man and said, because you're so righteous, I'm going to make you the father of this nation. The majority of Jewish rabbis and priests saw it this way. There was a small minority of them at the time who didn't. They said, no, that's not true. Uh, Abraham wasn't righteous by his behavior, by following the law. In fact, they would say, didn't the law not even come yet? And uh, that's a pretty good argument, right? There, there, if you understand anything about the way the Bible's laid out, you're like, wait a second, I don't think there is a law yet. How's he so good at following it? And most of the Jewish scholars and rabbis would say, well, he intuited the law, or uh, he, uh, he, he, God just sort of gave him a sense of what the right thing was and the wrong thing was, right? He just, he just inherently or intuitively knew what was right, and he did it. That God could give him the ability to do that long before the law it was around for the rest of the people. And that by doing that, Abraham showed God that he was righteous. The only problem with that, the thing that most Jewish people at the time believed, the only problem with that was that it wasn't true at all. And it wasn't what was said in Scripture. And so Paul goes back and he says to the people, he says, let's pick an example of a person who you admire because of their righteousness. If anyone can boast that they are on the right track in seeking after God and pursuing God, that they have something that they can be proud of in their efforts to do that, it's Abraham, the father of our faith. 
Paul's explanation to them about Abraham is this. He is not this icon of the faith because he is an example of obedience. He is the father of this faith because he is a model. He is an example of what it means to trust God. No matter what. That is what it means to be righteous. To be righteous is to trust in what God has done because God's righteousness is given to us from outside, like we talked about in the beginning of this whole series. Our obedience doesn't strengthen the love of God. Abraham's obedience did not strengthen the love of God. Nothing strengthens the love of God. This is a hard thing for the Jewish people who Paul's writing to to wrap their minds around. So justification by faith is being justified, trusting and believing in what God has done, and being justified because you trust and believe in that thing. It's an active faith. It's an active trust. It means living out your life in such a way that whereas you could choose to act out of fear, uh, to pick up the reins and to be in charge and control of it yourself, which we see people in the Old Testament do all the time. When God calls them to something, they freak out, and then they stop believing, and they stop trusting, and they try to take matters into their own hands, and things, become mess things get really messy. So we read here in our passage this simple verse, verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness was counted to him. So this word, uh, this phrase counted to him, this means it was credited to him. This is an accounting term. Okay, what this means is it's when a person assigns a value to a thing because they have the power to do that. But that's what changes it. It's like if, uh, if you're renting a house from someone and you're paying rental payments and they decide to take all the money that you've made in rental payments and to convert it to a rent-to-loan, uh, to own. And they say, guess what? Because I have decided to credit you this rental money as being a payment towards owning this house that's gone from being rent to being a house payment. I've credited that to you. And the, the, the theological term for this is imputed. It's called imputed righteousness. And this is a, one of the cornerstones of our faith and what we believe theologically because the, the, the doctrine, the theology of imputed righteousness says that we are righteous because something has been credited to or given to us from the outside. We talked about this in the very beginning of our series, that righteousness from God is something that we receive and we depend on and we live on and we draw life from. So we read here that Abraham believed God and righteousness was imputed to him, it was credited to him, and that's how justification by faith works. Abraham wasn't righteous because God chose to treat him as though he was living a righteous life. God made it so that faith, trust in him, counted the same as being a righteous person. He made it so that, that those two things were equal, and that is how we can have life in him. And so, because the Jewish people loved Abraham, they would say, well, sure, fine, we all know he's a good guy, whatever, whatever the arrangement was. 
But Abraham was a pretty obedient guy. He was a pretty godly guy. And so they do what we tend to do. Rather than reject the idea of faith and grace and belief and trust, they say, aren't these things combined? Abraham had to do both, right? He had to have faith and he had to do things to follow the law. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul goes on to explain how this works. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Counted as righteousness. So he says there's two types of people here. There are people who work and they simply earn for what they've done, for how they've worked. They've deserved what's come for them. And then there are those who don't work for what they've done. They simply believe in him who justifies the ungodly. It is often lost on us that our faith is built on a God who justifies the ungodly. I think most on the outside of Christianity would believe that our faith is built on a God who justifies the obedient, the godly, the mature, the righteous, right? Many of us would find ourselves falling in the hole of believing that that's really how it actually works in the end, that we believe in a God who helps those who help themselves, who recognizes the level of commitment that we're showing that others don't show and then rewards us for that. But what Paul says here in our passage this morning is this. Our faith is built on a God who justifies the ungodly. And depending on how you translate this, it gets even worse because it translates as a God who justifies the wicked. Let's put that on the front of our church and see how popular it makes us, right? Right? Oregon City Evangelical Church, a God who justifies the wicked, right? I'm not sure how much people would want to come in and be like, who is in there, right? I'm not sure that we'd want to say that's who we are, right? But this is what Paul is saying the gospel tells us. In short, Abraham was a scumbag just like everybody else. That's who he was, and that's who Paul tells us everyone is. In the Bible, you're either a sinner or you're a saint. You're either a totally holy person or you are wicked. You are either godly or ungodly, but there isn't an in-between, and none of us are able to accomplish what it takes to be on the better side of all those things. It goes a step further, we read in Galatians, when Paul is talking to the people there. We see tons of connections between what Paul writes in Galatians and in Romans, because Romans is the most thorough explanation of the gospel that you will ever find in Scripture. Romans is an entire book dedicated to explaining every detail possible about the gospel and its implications It's a theological treatise on the gospel. And then you have things like Galatians that are this call to the church to uh, to fight this drift that's going to happen with them constantly to trust in something else. What it says in Galatians, Paul says, is this about those who, um, who believe this way. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. 
He goes on to say, For it is written, Cursed be the everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So what Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, you get a choice. Abraham had a choice. Everybody has a choice. Either you are going to abide by the works of the law, or you're going to be someone whose righteousness is found in simply trusting in what God has done. If you choose, this is a little side note here, if you choose to abide in the works of the law, I can't do this because I have a microphone. If, if you choose to abide in the works of the law, I got to tell you, you're cursed. Just let you know, you're cursed. Okay. Yeah. What is a curse? Okay. To be cursed is to have, usually the phrase cursed is applied when something sort of like on the level of a God were to use their power to basically condemn you to a state where no matter what you do, you're, you're going to suffer ruin, right? So if someone says, uh, if God calls down a curse upon someone, the idea would be, sort of in any culture, a curse means no matter what you do, you're going to fail, right? We kind of know what this is like. We kind of experience this in some ways or others, right? Some of us feel cursed in certain areas of our life in certain ways, right? I can honestly say to you that, like, my, my theology and all that stuff, it seems to go completely out the window when you're talking about um, my wife who is cursed when she goes to Subway to get a sandwich. When my wife goes to Subway, she is cursed, like, I am telling you right now, I, I, I go, how do I make sense of this? How do I make sense of this after all the years that we've been together? But to this day, if she walks into a subway, she's going to come out like 35 minutes later and like her hair will be on fire or something and the place will be burning down and she'll be like, I'll be like, what happened this time? And it'll be like the craziest thing, the craziest comment. You know, you walk into subway and there's all that bread, not for her. She'll walk in and they'll be like, so we're out of bread today. Sorry. You know? Uh, I, I still remember sitting outside of a subway, right outside of Sister's Oregon, waiting for her to get a sandwich. She, her coming back in the car being like, this time I got the slowest sandwich artist that's ever worked there, whose pro prominent arm appeared to be the one that was in the cast, and whose other arm was the slowest I've ever seen at putting each olive on the sandwich and each pickle on I mean every time every time no matter what and so you go no curses aren't real this isn't a thing we believe for sure and I, I want to say that that's true I do believe that's true but I'm definitely saying up here that's not really a thing but I'm telling you right now it's going to happen again we're going to go it's like outside of her control no matter what she does no matter how much you try to head it off at the pass like if you find yourself hanging out with my wife and she walks anywhere near a subway like just get a far, as far away from her as you can because you're going to get struck by lightning or something okay the concept of a curse is that no matter what you do, something bad will happen. No matter how hard you try and work to overcome it, you're still going to come to ruin. So what Paul says in Galatians is he says, if a person relies on the works of the law, they have chosen to be cursed. Which means all the effort and all the work and anything that you do, you will suffer ruin, not prosperity not life. This is the language that he uses to tell us this. Paul goes on in our passage to quote David of all people. Now David is sort of considered to be the greatest king um, of Israel. David, the king who, um, who for many, had many reasons to boast in himself, if anyone could. He was the king. He had increased the nation's borders. He brought peace. He established Jerusalem as the capital 
with the ark of God's presence at its very heart. David had so many reasons to boast. And yet, in Psalm 32, which Paul quotes here, what David says is blessed. What he reflects on is David, King David, who's so great, another icon of the Jewish faith. David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count his sin. So David, who's a pretty great guy, says, who is blessed? What he doesn't say is he doesn't say, blessed are those who, whose good deeds are rewarded. Blessed are those who are righteous and perfect. No, he says, you know who is blessed? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against who the Lord will not count his sin. King David himself recognizes that the state that we all stand in before God is as sinful people who are blessed if we receive forgiveness from him. But no forefather of the Jewish faith was standing on the foundation of good works. This is the point that Paul is making to these people. And justification by faith, says Paul again and again, is trusting in what God has done through Jesus, not trusting in what we can do ourselves. So we hear that and we go, justification by faith sounds pretty great to me. Sounds a whole lot easier. Uh, that, that would solve a lot of problems for me. Um, I would not have to try nearly as hard. Um, I, I can think of all kinds of reasons why there should be no issues with this concept of justification by faith. And yet, we fight it. We fight justification by faith. There's a reason why Paul seems negative here. There's a reason why he's going after the Roman church who he told in the beginning of this book to them, this letter, he says how much he admires their faith, how much he appreciates them, how much he tells people whenever possible about the strong faith of the church in Rome. Even to that church, Paul looks at, and he's talking to them, he's arguing with them, he's pleading with them, because he knows that there's something in them that is going to fight against this incredibly easy idea of justification by faith. Great. God does it all. I don't have to do anything. Sounds good to me. Who doesn't want that? Why on earth would we fight against this thing? If this is such good news, why would anyone ever drift back towards depending on their obedience, on behavior and works to justify them? You see, the law, when, when, when we talk about righteousness and works of the law, what, what Paul's talking about with Abraham and to the Jewish people is the hundreds and hundreds of laws that we read about in the Old Testament that are given to the people. And if you want a really good example of what the most important ones are, we think of the Ten Commandments. Now, there's a reason those stand above the others, because those are the, ones, the only ones that God directly carves into stone with his own hand, Everything else is kind of coming from a person, so equally valid things, but that's why when we talk about the commandments and sort of like what it boils down to, you go back to these Ten Commandments and you go, you know, nothing that a, that a person is going to give in God's name, a priest or, you know, most anybody like that is going to give, should ever contradict especially these ten things because God kind of wrote them himself on the tablets. His second time, he gave us another chance, right? It was the second set, you know, we'll never, you know, we all know how that story goes and I want to get distracted by it, but... 
I'll tell jokes about it and all that stuff because I have a microphone in my hand. You look at the Ten Commandments, you look at the law. And when we think about righteousness by works, works of the law, things like that, we think about that, right? But that's what they were thinking about back then. What we would make a huge grave, we make a huge mistake, a grave error, if, if we let ourselves believe that that is all that obedience through the works of the law means today. Because the law was something that God never gave the people to justify themselves, but they used it that way. And in the very same way, in the world in which we live today, in the lives in which we live today, we have our own sets of rules and lots of other things that we would use to justify ourselves. There are lots and lots of things that we find ourselves doing in order to justify ourselves. I said in the beginning of this that in Romans 1 and 2, what Paul makes clear is that God says, I created you to serve me, to find your complete fulfillment, acceptance, satisfaction, validation, purpose, all of those things in me. Fulfillment, acceptance, satisfaction, validation, purpose, those things. Uh, you ask the question, where do we look for those things today? What are the things that we as people are prone to do, the ways that we're prone to try to find that, the things that we look to hoping desperately that whether it's a job or a family or the thing that we're good at or the thing that people like about us or the relationships about us or the country that we live in or the status that we have with people or even the status in the church itself, positions in ministry, positions in service, whatever it is, what are all of the things that we would look to and say, this is what makes someone a pretty good person. This is what gives me that validation, that acceptance, that significance, that fulfillment, that purpose. So when we talk about works of righteousness, we're not just talking about the stuff you read about in the Old Testament that God gave to his people. We're talking about all of the things that we do in an effort to fill what St. Augustine calls a God-shaped hole inside of all of us. There's two reasons why I think that we fight justification by faith. The first is this, and it's simple. We'd rather know that we've earned what we have as opposed to choosing grace. If we're honest, we would much rather live in, in a world where we have earned what we have that is good. That we can know at the end of the day that the good things that we have, that God's favor towards us and acceptance of us, those things come because we've managed to find a way to do the right things, to be the right kind of person. So we choose work over grace. The Bible describes our relationship with God as one of being a child of God, not as one of being a servant or a slave or an employee of God's. Although what the Bible also tells us is that we continue to go back to those other things. Imagine a child who woke up one day in their home and decided that they desperately needed to prove their place in their family. And so maybe the first day they got up and they, they spent a ton of time and effort, got really crafty, and made an amazing, new, better birth certificate. And they were like, I made this, I'm going to frame it and put it up, and this is how, <coughs> and this is how 
uh, we'll all, you know, be very clear that I belong in this family. And then maybe the next day they wake up and they just start doing all the chores around the house. Child wakes up and says, I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to do everything that I can. I'm going to show this family that I have a place here and I shouldn't have to go anywhere. And then maybe they wake up the third day and they go, no, I've got it. I'm going to start to act just like my parents. I'm going to start to dress just like my parents. I'm going to study my parents. My little notepad, a little notebook. My, oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, I like what you're doing here. This is good. This is very good. I like this. Uh, and then I'm going to perfectly act the way that my parents act. And the parents maybe go up to that child one day and say, what are you doing? I mean, don't get us wrong. We don't mind the extra work around the house. And certainly we like knowing someone wants to be like us, but what are you doing, right? Well, I just want to to justify my place in this family. I just want to make it clear that I uh, should belong here and have a place here, to which any true parent would say to their child, listen, there's nothing that you did to get into this family. And there's nothing you can do to get out of it, and there's nothing you can do to stay in it. That is the way that we approach God. And that even though we're told by Scripture again and again and again, you are children of God, There's nothing that you can do to earn this that doesn't sit well with us. And so we fight justification by faith. And instead, we say we would rather believe that we're doing the right things and earning this place that we have. Because nothing really feels better than just the self-satisfaction that comes from knowing I'm doing enough of the right thing, that I'm on the right track, that I'm not doing the wrong thing anymore. The other reason why we fight it is that we, we actually like the idea of working towards better versions of ourselves. So we like the idea of improving what's already here, right? Um, rather than what the Bible talks about, which is basically breaking it all down and having to start it over built on Christ. And because we want to work toward better versions of ourselves, we admire people who help us do that. It's interesting that Paul's approach here is to go after one of the people that the Jews looked up to the most. And he doesn't go after Abraham to break him down. He actually goes after Abraham to say, listen, you guys have put this person up on a pedestal. Because to you, he represents good works. He represents obedience. You could probably point your kids to him and say, be a good person like Abraham. Do the things that Abraham did when he followed this law that he didn't have back then but intuited, so it's okay. We want to work towards better versions of ourselves, so we actually admire people who help us do that. When I was a teenager and I was in in youth group, um, a very popular book, right in the midst of the, what's called the sort of purity culture movement, um, was this book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And I read that book and I kissed dating goodbye. It was pretty easy for me, I'm going to be honest. I hadn't really said hello to it yet. And there weren't a lot of people to kiss goodbye. Uh, So I kissed dating goodbye and I read the book. But I've recently been hearing about the author who wrote that book, Joshua Harris, how he went on from writing that book at the age of 16. He wrote the book at the age of 16. And uh, and then he went on to write several other popular books and go on these huge speaking tours. He eventually became a pastor of a very large church, only to eventually step down a few years ago saying, uh, number one, that he didn't really know what he believed about his faith. And then ultimately, after stepping down, sort of uh, recanting of the, the book that he wrote 
going out to the publishers and saying, unpublish my book, please. And then saying, uh, ultimately, I'm no longer a believer, and I want to apologize to anyone that I may have led astray, led the wrong way. Now, if you were to look at the course of his life, it is true that he became a pastor um, prior to going to college. He became a pastor prior to going to any kind of formal graduate training. But there were lots of things that maybe could have happened that would have set him up better to be a person who would not find himself in this position. But what's interesting about this the most is that the book that is most commonly associated with the purity movement from when I was a teenager was not a book that was written by a biblical counselor or a uh, Christian therapist or a seasoned pastor or even a parent of a teenager. Nobody wants to hear from them. It was a book written by a 16-year-old kid. And why did everyone want to read that book by that 16-year-old kid? Because he was the purest of all the 16-year-old kids. You see, it was more appealing to us to look at a person who had done the right things and say, I I want either my kid to turn out like that, or I maybe want to turn out like that. Because we like the idea of improving ourselves more than the idea of God's grace transforming us, we will put people on pedestals and look to people because we we can mimic their behavior. Because we can choose to live the way that they live. When is this clearer to us than in January when we go, what do I need to get rid of or be better at? And who do I look to who does that thing well or doesn't do that thing that I want to try to avoid now? It is so much easier for us to just deal with behavior, right? And it works that way when it comes to the people that we admire. I think that's the reason why Paul is going this route. I know it is part of the reason. And it's one of the reasons why we fight justification by faith. Because not only do we have a hard time accepting that we are children of God, but we have a hard time accepting that self-improvement is not going to be the answer. I would love to be able to say that I gave God some great raw materials and together we both worked hard and I became some better person. But that's not the gospel and that's honestly not at all what happened. But it's easy for us to admire people who do those things. So the question is, if we know that even though this is such good news that seems like it'd be so easy to receive, there is something within us that fights against it. That we do tend to drift away from it, it seems, and Paul's pulling us back again and again. Man, if there's something that you read about in the New Testament having to do with Christians and the gospel, it seems to be that we drift away from it. So the question then comes, How in the world do we live in this thing, justification by faith? How do we actually not just say we agree with it in our theology, but actually have lives that live it out? Lives that say, I am only righteous because of what God has done, and I want to be a person whose faith in God grows before maybe I start to focus on all my actions and those things growing, those things improving which are kind of easier to focus on because those are what other people see and maybe admire and reward. The question of how do we live in it, I think there's two things that we do. The two things that we do to live in this justification by faith that Paul's talking about through Abraham. 
And, and I, I was reading through Mere Christianity this week, and C.S. Lewis does a great job in that book of summing up these two basic things, I think. The first is this. How do we live in justification by faith? How do we fight the drift that will continue to come? And the first thing that C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity is this. He says, the first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. That's interesting, right? If there's only two steps and the first one is moods, eh, there should be more steps. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. So much of, um, of life is how we feel and the situation that we're in. You may feel a little different about your life than you did three years ago because the circumstances around your life have changed just a little bit. You may feel different about your life because the sun hasn't shined in three months. You may feel different about your life because of the number of kids you have compared to a few years ago. You may feel different about your life because your kids haven't moved out yet or because they did move out. There's all kinds of things that affect the way that we feel. And C.S. Lewis, somebody who strikes me as more of an intellectual than an emotional person, who will often speak of his becoming a Christian as not as much of an intellectual process as he would have liked to think it would be. But ultimately, he realized, coming to faith, that we have a lot more going on emotionally that God's wired us towards. Even these smart intellectual people have to acknowledge these things going on in our hearts that keep us from him, not just the arguments against or for God. So he says the first step is this. If we're going to live in justification by faith, we have to know that it's not going to feel right and natural all the time. That as my mood changes and life circumstances change, that the idea of justified by faith maybe isn't going to feel right to me a lot of the time. That I'm going to be pulled away from it. If we trust our emotions and our desires and the way that we want to see ourselves, and that becomes the way we know where we stand with God, then if we start to drift away into our own works, our own effort, rebellion towards God even, self-righteousness, boasting in ourself, then we think, well, this is the right thing because it's what I'm feeling, it's how I'm feeling, it's what I'm wanting. So the first thing is to just recognize that like the way that we feel affects our faith. The second thing that he says is to work to keep this thing that you believe, the gospel, in the forefront of your mind every day. He says it this way in Mere Christianity. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examined 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? Every distinguished Christian author will say or will write that the cornerstone of the Christian life is really simple. You wake up again, day after day, each day, as an orphan, and you have to choose to be a child of God. They're not saying that positionally speaking, when you wake up in the morning, you got to become a Christian again. A lot of you maybe made that mistake and accepted Jesus like 85 times in a couple of years. Got baptized a bunch of different times. I just, it didn't stick, it didn't stick. This time it's going to stick. Every January, here we go. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm not saying that you wake up alienated from God. I'm saying that, that like the smartest Christian people who have ever thought about this stuff and written about this stuff all seem to agree that you're going to wake up in the morning feeling like an orphan from God and you're going to need to put the truth of the gospel before your eyes in order to be reminded of who you are in him because you live in the flesh. And that if we don't do that, we will drift away. Just like we do from other things that we believe that we don't spend time actually reflecting on. The way that we live in it is that we understand the way that our heart is deceptive. The way that our heart steers us in directions through our moods and our emotions. And that that's something that we have to know is happening. But the even bigger way is that we actually work to keep this thing at the forefront of our minds. The people who say this again and again, who give the advice to do this, are some pretty mature believers in Jesus. So the idea that we might have that once you get to a certain level in your faith, a certain level of maturity, that it's not quite so important to do this, that's not true. I say this as a person who began struggling to spend daily time with God and his word, reflecting on his truths and his promises, day one, I struggled with it. And today, I struggle with it. It is really, really hard for me to simply sit at the feet of Jesus and to go back to the promises of the gospel and to be reminded of what my standing is in. It's what being in a community of believers helps me do more. How great is it that as we're talking about this, that we happen to have a thing out in the lobby? Here's my plug for the prayer guide. You ready? Now, as we were talking about the devotional that we did for the Unity Series, and as we talked to many of you guys when that happened, we had so many people talk with us and say, it is so helpful to be able to, number one, know that our whole church is doing something like this together, but to also just be able to sit and to reflect upon these things and to pray through these things daily as a way of letting God's word shape our hearts. In all honesty, it does not, uh, you, you can get, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, this is not a good thing for me to tell you, but I'm going to tell you this anyway, right? Like, like for job security or whatever. Like mediocre sermons are enough, guys. Mediocre sermons are enough. Bad sermons are enough. If you go home and read your Bible and talk to God every day, <laughs> that's actually how we grow the most in our faith. And so what we've realized is, is we've been in this series on the gospel in Romans, and it's forcing us to spend like a year in the gospel in Romans in this really drawn out way. It causes us to go, well, if the gospel really does have implications in every part of our lives, this idea that, that righteousness, my standing, my fulfillment, my justification, my position in the world, everything is affected by the fact that I have life only in what God has done, not in what I can accomplish and do on my own. If that is true, then I have to go back and I also, I could look at any part of my life, any part of my life and say, what is the gospel Jesus saves? What is the gospel? God's righteousness is, is what my identity is rooted in, not my own. What does the gospel have to say to this thing in my life? And I would be shaped by that thing. So I'm excited because 
if, if you do this, if we do this together, even just for the next three weeks, if we pick up a prayer guide and we say in the morning uh, or whenever I do it during the day, whether I sit down with somebody in my family or I do it by myself, I'm just going to take time. I'm going to carve out time and I'm going to spend time reflecting on the gospel itself, talking to God about it, acknowledging that what's going on in my heart may not necessarily always be that which is true. I think, too, we would be arrogant, we'd be foolish to read the words of Paul and to think, man, these people in the church in Rome, they were a mess if they needed somebody to convince them this hard about the power of grace and the power of justification by faith. As easy as this thing seems to be to us to receive, the truth is there's something within us that wants to fight against it constantly as long as we live in the flesh. And the good news is that the answer is very simple. We continue to go back again and again and again and be reminded of and be in community of people who will remind us of and encourage us with this truth. Our God is a God who justifies the wicked. Ours is a God who justifies the ungodly. And the only way that he was able to do that was the sacrifice of his son. Because had Jesus not died on the cross, he wouldn't also be a just God. He would be, like we said last week, the justifier. He would be the judge who decides a person is innocent, but everybody in town would know that's not a good judge because their definition of what it means to be innocent is wrong. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that we follow and that we love. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you that I am prone to wander, that I am prone to drift, that I, in my heart, am prone to just want so badly to be able to finally build my life and my identity on the things that I can do. I want, I find myself being pulled to finding fulfillment, purpose, pride, in things that I can do. That, that as much as I wish that when someone compliments me on something that I could just take it lightly, that I, I don't. That that becomes an opportunity to now have something in my life that I can boast in, that I can be proud of, that I can find my value in apart from you. God, our hearts are pulled to that as long as we live in the flesh of these bodies. Lord, would you help us to come back and to see the beauty of understanding that this isn't about improving ourselves. This isn't about, about being better. That it's not about finding people who behave the best and act the best and are the most successful in life and trying to model our lives after those people and those things. It is about trusting in you, which is a challenge for us, Lord. As we worship you, as we reflect on you in these words, God, would you just show us the beauty of trusting in you and having faith in you and being justified by faith, Lord. This is such good news, and we worship you because of it, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.